we're going to be doing our scripture lesson a little bit differently today. We're going to please make sure that you see the yellow mic is also being used here. I'd like to invite Kristen and James to come forward. They're going to do a dramatic reading of our scripture. If you are looking for the scripture, it's found in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. And it is also, this is an adaptation from the message. Naaman was general of the Syrian army and served faithfully under his king. He was important to his master, who held him in the highest esteem, because it was by him that God had given victory to Syria. He was truly a great man, but he was afflicted with an awful skin disease. It so happened that Syria, on one of its raiding expeditions against Israel, captured a young girl who became a maid to Naaman's wife. One day, she said to her mistress, Oh, if only my master could meet the prophet of Samaria, he would be healed of his skin disease. Naaman went straight to his master and reported what the girl from Israel had said. Well then, go. This is great news, said the king of Syria. And I'll even send a personal letter of introduction to the king of Israel. So Naaman went off, taking with him about 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothes. Naaman delivered the letter to the king of Israel. The letter read, Dear king, when you get this letter, you'll know I've personally sent my servant Naaman to you. Please heal him of his skin disease. Sincerely, the king of Syria. When the king of Israel read the letter, he was terribly upset, ripping his robe to pieces. He said, Am I a god with the power to bring death or life that I get orders to heal this man from his disease? What's going on here? That king's trying to pick a fight. That's what. Elisha, the man of God, heard what had happened, that the king of Israel was so distressed that he'd ripped his robe to shreds. He sent word to the king. Why are you so upset, ripping your robe like this? Send him to me so he'll learn that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman with his horses and chariots arrived in style and stopped at Elisha's door. Elisha sent out a servant to meet him with this message. Go to the River Jordan and immerse yourself seven times. Your skin will be healed and you'll be as good as new. Naaman lost his temper. He turned on his heel, saying, I thought he'd personally come out and meet me, call on the name of God, wave his hand over the diseased spot, and get rid of the disease. The Damascus rivers, Abana and Farper, are cleaner by far than any of the rivers in Israel. Why not bathe in them? At least I'd get clean. He stomped off, mad as a hornet. But his servants caught up with him and said, Excuse me, if the prophet had asked you to do something hard and heroic, wouldn't you have done it? So why not this simple wash and be clean? Naaman reconsidered the matter, and he did what he was told. He went down and immersed himself in the Jordan seven times, following the orders of the holy man. His skin was healed. It was like the skin of a little baby. He was good as new. Naaman then went back to the holy man, he and his entourage, stood before Elisha and said, I now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no God anywhere on earth other than the God of Israel. In gratitude, let me give you a gift. Elisha smiled and replied to Naaman, As God lives, the God whom I serve, I'll take nothing from you. Naaman tried his best to get him to take something, but Elisha was very clear that he wouldn't accept anything from him. Naaman was given a free gift, and there was nothing he needed to do other than accept the gift. If you won't take anything, said Naaman, 
Let me ask you for something. Give me a load of dirt, as much as a team of donkeys can carry, because I'm never again going to worship any god other than God. But there's one thing for which I need God's pardon. When my master, leaning on my arm, enters the shrine of Rimen and worships there, and I'm with him, may you see to it that God forgives me for this. Elisha said, Naaman, you are overthinking this. Don't worry about anything. Everything will be all right. Go in peace. We are continuing in our studies of the Old Testament prophets. Today we come to Elisha, not Elijah. We've already looked at Elijah. And if I accidentally say Elijah, you get to extend grace to me because it's an easy make, mistake to make. When we think of this prophet, and again, you'll find his story in 2 Kings the text we read this morning is from 2 Kings 5, 1 through 19. I want us to consider this about him. He was the ultimate bridge builder. He was the one who was able to reach out to people who are very different and share faith in an effective manner. You see, we live in a world in which it's hard to build bridges with others. What happens is far too often people get caught up in arguments or trying to persuade people of things. And how's that working for us? From everything I can see, we end up falling into arguments and disagreements. And people who are individuals of faith, those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, we desperately would like to build bridges with people who disagree or see the world differently. But instead of effectively building a bridge the way that we saw that Elisha did and what we're going to talk about this morning, we go to arguments or disagreements and trying to persuade people, and it doesn't do any good. In fact, a lot of times what we do is we cause more damage than we've helped. Now, don't get me wrong. It's important for us to be honest about our faith and truthful to what we believe. There's no question about that. Elisha does not compromise his values or who he was. However, he builds bridges. He builds bridges to people who are very different from him. Way back when I was a freshman in college, we were in a school that had an engineering program, and the freshmen had to build bridges made out of toothpicks. I don't know if any of you remember that particular project, but it was a big deal on our campus, and a number of engineers were on my dorm floor, and so I got to go and look at these amazing bridges. I am not an engineer, and the whole process looked just incredible to me. And I remember as we went to watch the competition, because now these bridges, everybody had the same number of toothpicks, and they had glue, and that's all they were allowed to use. And now they were going to lay weights on top of these bridges, and they were going to see whose bridge could hold the greatest amount of weight. And there were some beautiful bridges. They looked awesome. They looked incredible. And there were others that, well, it didn't look that great. But once it came time for laying the weights on top of the bridges... It amazed me how some of these beautiful bridges that look great on the outside just came crashing down. And it was a friend of mine who actually won the competition. And I remember looking at his bridge thinking, that thing's not going to hold much. And it held more than anyone else. 
Why do I say that? Is because sometimes that's what we do as Christians. We build what we construe in our mind are these great bridges. We come up with all these arguments and all these things that we're going to tell someone else, and we are absolutely convinced that we can now finally, once and for all, convince somebody else of our ideas. Amen? That's what we do, only to see the bridge come crashing down. Because rather than us doing something that's effective, to us it may look beautiful and wonderful in our minds, but that's not how you share the gospel. That's not how we influence others. That's not how we extend God's grace. I came across this quote recently that reminds us that the way in which we have influence as Christians towards others is not just the words that we speak, but far more importantly, how we live. Listen to the quote. Don't tell me what you believe in. I'll observe how you behave, and I'll make my own determination. The late Alex Trebek said that. Do you hear what we're being reminded of? People watch us how we live. We often say, you're the only Bible that your non-Christian family and friends are ever going to read. And you and I, by how we live and how we act towards others, are then put into a place where we have the opportunity when we live with a loving, caring manner the way Elisha did to be able to eventually share the good news. But if we begin by trying to make elaborate arguments to others or get into arguments and disagreements with others, our bridges just come crashing down which is why we come to this week's prophet. Again, we are looking at 14 different prophets from the Old Testament. Elisha is what I would like to call not just a bridge builder, but the prophet of action. How he lived helped others change. The way in which he treated people got noticed by everyone else. And because of how Elisha lived, others came to faith without Elisha in our text even saying anything at all. You see, we need to begin by believing that not only God is working in our lives, listen carefully, God's working in the lives of your family and friends all the time. The Holy Spirit that works in your life is also working in the lives of everyone else, whether you and I see it. God doesn't ask for us to be the Holy Spirit. God doesn't ask for us to be the person who persuades everybody of everything. God asks us to trust that he's doing his work in other people's lives, and now we build bridges on how we treat people, how we act towards others, and then we get invited to share our story and to let others know the hope that lies within us. Elisha lived 800 years before Jesus. He, interestingly, unlike many of the other prophets, was a wealthy man. And the Bible talks about all the means that he has, but the stuff that he had and the wealth that he had, he used to serve other people. And so there's stories in 2 Kings of how he helps others because of the means that he had. He also was a prophet who helped very common people. He had certain experiences with those who were royalty or those who were people in power, but the vast majority of his experiences were with just common, everyday human beings. One of the stories, and I think about how life hasn't changed. Think of this, it's 2,800 years ago. He went to a community that had bad water. Think of that in terms of our news of what continues to happen in some of our communities, like in Michigan. What does he do? He helps the people, and he makes the water better. 
not because he's out to do anything to impress people, but rather out of his care in showing that he does what he can do as a prophet of God. There's another time where a poor woman who's a widow, her son dies, and he has a prayer, and the child comes back to life. Amazing things. And then you come to this story of him and the Syrian army. And think of the context that's taking place in this story. The Bible tells us that Syria has just attacked Israel and won a battle. And what happened in the ancient world when you would win a battle? You'd take people off as slaves to your country. And so that's what happened. Naaman and the king of Syria have won a battle in Israel and have taken people captive back to Syria. And living in Naaman's home is a young girl who's been taken captivity. Try to imagine the hatred that people would have had for the Syrian army and the people of Syria. Think about, we can't even fathom that. Somebody coming into the United States and attacking our country and taking people captive into another nation, and now we're supposed to act loving and graciously towards those people? But that's exactly what you learn about Elisha. Because this young girl who's taken captive into Naaman's home finds out that Naaman has leprosy, and she's become a person of faith. She's a person who knows that God has a purpose for her life. And rather than hating this guy, she just goes to the wife of Naaman and says, you know, back home in Israel, there's a good guy. His name is Elisha. He could help Naaman. If Naaman would just find a way to go see him, he'd pray for him, and I think he could be healed. She also knows in her conversation that Elisha is the kind of person who unconditionally loves and cares for other people, and in loving and caring for other people, wants to do everything he can in how he lives to show God's love towards others. I was in my first church, a little church in Lowell, and a few summers, a couple that were missionaries to the United Ministries of Nepal had children who lived in our town, who were adult children, so they would come and they would visit. And because they were Methodists, they would come to our church on Sunday during the time that they were here in the States. We got to know Ed and Edna Shields really well. Again, it was a little church. We had 25 people in church, and this couple of missionaries show up for the summer, so we were able to spend time with them and had them over to our home for dinner. And in the conversations I had with Ed and Edna, I discovered something amazing. They were missionaries to a country that at the time it was illegal to share the gospel. You couldn't tell people your faith. You couldn't proselytize in any way, shape, or form, or you'd end up in jail. And I said to them, then how do you act as a missionary? It made no sense to me. I said, I thought your purpose was to go and tell people about Christ and Jesus' love and present the salvation message. And they said, well, what we do is we show it through our actions. We just unconditionally love the people of Nepal. And we have a bunch of ministries that people know that we're Christians, that we just share Christ's love. Does anybody come to faith? I mean, is there any value? They go, oh, yeah, we've had people who've converted. Good people have come to trust in Christ. You see, God has a plan and a purpose working out in people's lives. And when we as Christians simply live out our faith, other people notice. 
Which is why in building bridges at last, the first thing we learn from Elisha is for us to be God's ambassadors into our world, for us to have a message that's different from how everyone else lives, we need to learn to work on accepting others. That's a hard thing for us to do, especially in 21st century America, where the process of accepting others doesn't exactly seem to be on a premium these days. People are divisive. People have opinions. People think everybody else should think the world the way they do. But the idea of being just radically loving and accepting Christians is something people are desperate for and they can't even comprehend. And yet we have the opportunity to be the Elishas of the 21st century and to begin by genuinely loving and reaching out to others. We're told in verses 1 through 5, Naaman was a commander in the army of the king of Syria. And in verse 2, that the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. This girl had learned to live out an amazing truth. 800 years before the life of Jesus, she could already quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Her faith already lived that out. You see, the, the story that we're hearing here is a conversion of this guy Naaman because Naaman comes to faith and becomes a believer. But it begins with this child who understands God so loves the world, and that even means God loves this guy whose home I'm living in now. She also knew, and we also discover, that Elisha had that exact same attitude towards others. He understood that if he was in market basket and somebody was cutting the line or having 14 items in the, the line that said 12, that his purpose wasn't to correct the person and tell them how wrong they were, but to smile and being loving and learn to build a bridge. He also knew that when he was driving down Route 3, if somebody cut him off, he wasn't supposed to give him a one-way symbol to Jesus that didn't quite look like a one-way symbol to Jesus. That our responsibility as Christians is to love unconditionally. Jesus gave his life for the world. For just not you and me, but for others. And so Elisha demonstrates to us how to love and to accept people unconditionally, believing that God's working in their lives. The problem is, we project. Far before we even have a conversation with someone else, we can already tell them what they're thinking, what they're believing, what their attitudes are, and what their opinions are on everything. If you don't believe it, start noticing how many times we do that when we encounter other people. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not just a modern-day invention that we project towards others. The Bible has a lot to say about that also. One of my favorite stories in the scriptures is the story of Jacob and Esau. They got these two brothers, and they're twins. Unfortunately for Jacob, Esau is born first. So there's a birthright that you go to, to Esau. But Jacob steals it. And like any good self-respecting thief, he skedaddles out of there and leaves for at least 14 years. We don't know exactly how long, but he's gone for at least 14 years. He goes to his uncle's home, and now he's married, he started a family, he's doing pretty well in life, and he's decided that it's time for him to come home. What does he do? He conjures up in his mind all kinds of things about his brother. 
My brother hates me. My brother's out to get me. My brother would never forgive me. He can't even comprehend that God's been working in his brother's life. So then the Bible tells us that he sets out and he comes back, and it's a day before he's going to meet his brother Esau. And again, he does probably what all of us would like to do if we could. He sends out spies to see if he can get a little bit of scoop on what's going on with his brother. And the spies come back and say, whoa, your brother has 400 people, and they're all coming out to meet you. He's heard that they're coming. So now Jacob really has it figured out. Oh, my goodness, my brother is out to kill me. So the Bible tells us that Jacob divides his family into two different groups. We assume so that at least if he's going to wipe out half of us, the other half of us can live. And then it's the night before he's going to meet his brother. And Jacob can't sleep. Let's be honest. How many of us have ever had sleepless nights where our mind starts churning? Come on, honest time here. There you go. We can identify with Jacob at that point, can't we? Remember, he still doesn't know anything. It's all in his head. So he spends the night ruminating and thinking about it and literally fights with God. It says an angel of the Lord fights with him and he hurts his hip in the middle of the night. The next day, it's time for Jacob to finally encounter his brother. And in Genesis 33, verse 4, we read these words. But, it's always great when you find a but. It means everything that he's assumed is wrong. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the two brothers wept. Jacob had spent 14 years thinking thoughts about his brother that just were not true. He spent 14 years assuming that my brother hates me, my brother's out to get me, my brother is not a believer, my brother is a bad person. All the while, God had softened Esau's heart and probably let the resentment go years ago. You see, what we learn from the story of Elisha is that God wants us to get out of our heads, quit projecting towards others, and learn to accept people so we can genuinely start building bridges with people and start having real conversations with others. I like to ask people who have been active in their church and are strong Christians, especially if people start to become leaders or if they're sitting in a Bible study and they're faithful in a Bible study, I like to ask this question. Who's the Christian that was most influential in your life? It's an interesting thought to think about. Who's the Christian that was most influential in your life, that really helped you understand what it is to be a Christian? Do you know what I discover? Nobody ever tells me about somebody who told them anything. They always tell me about how someone lived before them, how someone acted, how someone treated them. How someone loved them unconditionally or just accepted them through a difficult time in life. Hearing a consistent message here? If we're going to be effective bridge builders rather than ones who argue with others and have those bridges come crashing down, it begins by learning to accept people. And in accepting, we're trusting that God is working in other people's lives. And then when we start building these bridges with others, we need to learn to be ourselves. If you can't be the best you that you can be, don't try to be someone else. Because far too often, 
we begin by assuming all sorts of stuff. Well, if I have a non-Christian family member, I need to have all the answers, and so I need to construe all these arguments to persuade them of something. Or if we have somebody at work, we start thinking that we need to act and be somebody different than who we are. What's interesting in the story of Elisha is he knew who he was, and he knew who he wasn't. He understood how he could reach out and help somebody, but he also knew his limits. We would call that today boundaries. In verses 8 through 10, we're told that when Elisha, this man of God, heard that the king of Israel had had this guy Naaman who came to him, and Naaman had gotten the king of Israel all upset by this letter because this letter had said, help this general from my army, and the king of Israel did what any good self-respecting neurotic person does. He projected and he assumed, oh my goodness, this means Syria wants to go to war with us again, which they didn't. Elisha hears about it, and he comes in and he goes, I think I can help. I think there's something I can do. Send him to me. I'll have a prayer with him. See, he knew who he was. I'll help him. I'll have a prayer, and I believe that God can heal this guy. But then when it came time for Elisha to encounter Naaman, Elisha was busy that day. I don't know, maybe it was his granddaughter's birthday. And he decided he needed to go spend the day with his granddaughter. Maybe he was busy with a project around the house. And he promised his spouse that he was finally going to get to the thing that the spouse had bugged him about forever. And his wife had told him to get this thing done. And he was like, you know, I'm going to do it today. And now this guy's coming. And I really can't go spend time with him. So he had good boundaries. And he knew what he could do. And he knew what he couldn't do. And therefore, he sent his servants out and said, go tell the guy this is what he needs to do. I'll be praying for him. And he just needs to go dip in the river. And God, I'm sure, will heal him. You see, we get ourselves all messed up when we try to be somebody that we aren't and don't have boundaries around what we can do. Learning to comfortably be the best of ourselves allows us to be God's instruments in our world to build bridges with others. Let's be honest, folks. If others are struggling, we can do absolutely everything that Elisha did, every one of us. We can have a prayer with people. Somebody's struggling, we can say, hey, I can help. Just send them to me and we'll, we'll have a prayer with them. But we also need to understand there's times in our life when, when we need to realize there's nothing more we can do and we need to be okay with that also because we need to be honest like Elisha was so that we can genuinely build bridges with others and God can use us, not some projection of ourselves that doesn't exist that we try to pretend and be phony about and bring before others. I think I was in fifth grade when it was Christmas time and our teacher told us that for the last day of school before the Christmas break, we were going to have our Christmas party. And so we all were assigned different things that we needed to bring to the Christmas party. And a number of us were assigned cookies, which I was all excited about because my grandmother was visiting from Ontario. And you got to understand, I don't care how good your grandmother's cookies were. My grandmother made the best Christmas sugar cookies of anybody I've ever met. So I was all excited. 
And I went home and told my grandmother what was happening and asked her if she could make cookies. She said, absolutely. But then I thought about my grandmother's cookies, and I realized my grandmother didn't decorate her cookies. She just made simple sugar cookies and put little sprinkles on top. So I said, Grandma, everybody else is going to have all these fancy decorated cookies. Do you think you could decorate your cookies this one time? My grandmother answered very straightforward, I'll think about it. That means no. <laughs> so it came day for our Christmas party, and my grandmother proudly gave me the fresh-baked cookies that she made the day before, and my heart sunk when I realized she hadn't decorated them. I took them to school, realizing my, my grandmother's cookies are the best-tasting cookies that anybody's ever made. If you don't believe it, just ask me. And I laid out my cookies when it came time for the party, and I saw all these other beautifully decorated cookies that were sleighs and, and Santas and all kinds of stuff, red and green and beautifully decorated. And there were my plain sugar cookies that my grandmother made every Christmas with some little sprinkles on top. And I noticed how when the kids went forward, the first thing they did is grabbed everybody else's cookies, and my grandmother's cookies were sitting there. But then a miracle happened. A buzz happened around the room. Somebody actually tasted my grandmother's cookies and really liked them and started telling everybody else. And when the end of the party came, everybody took cookies home except for me. My grandmother's cookies were all eaten. Do you know what my grandmother knew? Who she was and who she wasn't. She knew who she was and she knew who she wasn't. If we are going to be effective in building bridges with people, in sharing the gospel, in loving others, in extending the love of Christ to others, folks, you need to know who you are and what you can do in loving and sharing Christ's love with others. But you also have to have the boundaries and realize where your and my limits are. The last thing we learn about Elisha is that he clarifies God's love. He doesn't just clarify God's love and grace. He waits until he's asked. He doesn't go rushing in, as we like to say, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Instead, he waits until Naaman has had an experience with God, trusting that the Holy Spirit's working in, a lot in Naaman's life, and now when Naaman has some questions, Elisha's there to answer them and help him. What's interesting about the text is it is very clear that Naaman has a conversion. This guy goes from being an unbeliever to being a believer. We would say he was born again. He's transformed by the Holy Spirit. He becomes a Bible-believing Christian. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized by fire. You name it, it happens to this guy but he's still kind of a baby in Christ or a baby in his relationship with God, and he's got questions. And so we find in the last part of our text, verses 15 through 19, we hear his confession. We hear Naaman say, Behold, I know there is no other God on earth but the God of Israel. And then he asks a question. He says, Can I pay for this thing you just did for me? Can God be bought? Do I owe something now? Do I need to pay back this gift that God gave to me? And Elisha says, no. No, it's a free gift. You've been forgiven. God loves you. Well, I came with all these horses and all this silver and all this gold. We'll take it back with you. 
People ask that same question today. What do I need to pay? What's God ask out of me? It is a free gift. We're going to say that together. It is a free gift. We struggle with that. God's grace is free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do something. You don't have to go out and pay back 30 years of tithes and offerings that you forgot to pay because somehow God needs all that money. We serve the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And then Naaman says, okay, fine, I, I get it. I don't have to pay. That's awesome. But could I ask one other thing of you? I got a problem. What's the problem, Naaman? Well, I have to go back to Syria. Like, I, I got to go back home, and I got to work for the king, and the king's not a believer. And so the king's still going to require me when he goes in to the god Neman to go accompany him. And I'm not going to worship the god Neman. I'm going to worship God. I, I'm a believer. But God's going to hate me for that. How's God going to tolerate me going back and living in my life and conducting the affairs that I have to do? And again, Elisha's answer to him is pretty simple. It's a gift. You're forgiven. You don't have to do something to earn it. You get to go live your life. You just get to live your life better. See, that's the gospel message, folks. That's a gospel message. Oh, oh, if I give my life to Jesus, does that mean I have to go be a missionary to India? Only if God asks you to be a missionary to India. Otherwise, you probably go back to your boring job on Monday, and you just got to be a new creation in Christ. Well, well, you don't understand. Like, I work in a place where people swear and say awful things and, and are really negative people. Do I need to go get a new job? No, we tell people, you don't need to go get a new job. You get to be light where God sends you back. That's what happens to Naaman. He doesn't have to go back to Syria and quit living his life and quit doing his job. God's given him a gift of salvation. He's been forgiven. He's been transformed. He has a new heart. He now gets to carry that back with him everywhere he goes. In some ways, I kind of think the story of Elisha is sort of a repetitive story. It's a story we hear over and over and over in the scriptures. That our responsibility is to be the best of who we are and let the Holy Spirit work in our lives as we learn to love and accept other people, trusting that God's working in other people's lives, learning to be ourselves, and then as God asks out of us and people start inquiring, we get to clarify the gift of salvation, the gift of the free, loving God who gave his life for every single person in this world. Because as a little girl learned who lived in Naaman's home, for God so loved the world. We live in a hurting world. We live with people who argue and fight and are divided all over the place. We get to be the Elishas of our generation. I'd like to end with a thought that I thought about after our last worship service. When I was in, in seminary, I was privileged to take a class by Dick Peace. He worked with serendipity. Do any of you remember serendipity Bible studies? It was a community Bible study where people were invited to invite their non-Christian friends into a Bible study. 
And the purpose was to have these home groups where we could learn the scriptures, but we could also invite people just at their own pace to see if maybe God was working in their lives. And Dick Peace gave us an assignment, and he said, think of the most difficult person in your life. How would you share the gospel effectively with them? Not how would you argue with them, not how would you tell them everything they do wrong. How would you effectively share with them? That's the story of Elisha. That's your assignment for the week. Think of the most challenging person in your life. Think of the person you have the hardest time with. Or you have the belief that, you know, this person is so far away from God, I can't even believe that God's working in their life. How would you act towards that person? How would you be an Elisha to them? That's what God invites us to do. We're going through a process of learning these Old Testament prophets. They may have spoken some 2,800 years ago, but the world hasn't changed much. And the messages that they have are just as relevant for us today as for the day in which they spoke them. God has people in your lives and mine that we're invited to effectively build bridges with. It's our responsibility to do our part, but only what we can do, and to do it in a loving and caring manner, believing that the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of everyone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to set aside the notions that we have that people that we struggle with are somehow beyond your grace. Help us to realize that every person we encounter is your child and somebody that you're working in their hearts and you're doing your work to bring them into a relationship with you and help us be privileged to be the Elishas of our generation. For Heavenly Father, you have a plan and a purpose for each one of us. We ask that we could boldly, boldly accept the forgiveness that you've given to us, not thinking that we have to do anything to earn anything in our lives, and graciously extending that love to others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.